If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. This episode is brought to you by Bye. It's Wonderwater. What makes Bye so great? It's simple. From raspberry lemon lime by Sydney Sweeney to Zambia Bing Cherry and Palavo Pineapple Mango. Bai has antioxidants, electrolytes, and no artificial sweeteners. So for flavorful hydration, choose Bai. It's Wonder Water. Learn more about Bai and discover all of the exotic, bold flavors at drinkbuy.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For today's podcast, I spoke to the author Stephen Tompkins. Stephen has written widely on the history of Christianity, and his latest book, The Journey to the Mayflower, explores the rise of Puritanism in England. I met Stephen in London to discuss how religious persecution forced dissidents to seek new lives abroad and eventually to head for North America. 2020 marks the 400th anniversary of the voyage of the Mayflower and your book tells the story that leads up to that in terms of the emergence and evolution of Protestant separatist movements in England, some of whose members then um, partook in that voyage. So to start us off in our conversation today, I wonder if you could... Tell us what the climate was like for religious minorities in 16th and early 17th century England. Mm. It was completely illegal to be a religious minority. Um, Whether you are Catholic or Protestant, what virtually everyone agreed on was that there was a state church. So everyone, every person in the country would be a member of the church. You would be uh, included in your parish church and you'd be expected to go. Uh, Obviously, in 
England and Protestant church, there were Catholics who didn't go to their um, parish church. And so that was something that um, was punished. Um, it was a rather unexpected problem for the Protestant church that they then had um, Protestant dissenters as well, because they knew they were going to have Catholics who didn't want to go to church and they were going to have to deal with that. But when Queen Elizabeth um, introduced her reforms and they were rather more traditional and backward looking, and less progressive than a lot of Protestants wanted, uh, there was a movement for reform in the church. Even that was obviously very controversial and the, um, you know, the, the Privy Council and the Queen were wanting to deal with this movement and crush this movement for reform within the church. So when you then had people leaving the church and setting up their own private churches because they felt so strongly about the need to reform the church, that was completely illegal. And so anyone who did that could expect to have their services raided and they were arrested. So there had to be as secretive as possible. They met in woods, in caves, in private houses, sometimes in ships sometimes in the upper rooms of pubs, wherever they thought they could get away with it. There was one occasion where they faked a wedding so that they could meet and have a, a religious service, but that was raided by the bishop's men. And um, there were sometimes spies who infiltrated the service and reported them to the authorities. So that was the kind of problem that uh, you were dealing with if you were a dissident. What forms did some of these dissident churches take and why were they so motivated to set up their own um, alternative church? Mm -hmm. So to start with, um, they were simply members of the Puritan reform movement within the Church of England who were forced out of the church in a way because uh, in the... 1560s, you got the Queen demanding that the Archbishop, Matthew Parker, um, deals with the Puritan movement. The flashpoint between the Puritans and the, the church authorities was the issue of vestments, the traditional robes that the Queen expected all ministers to wear. And that was really unpopular, and the Puritans were refusing to wear them. They got away with that. Why was it so unpopular? For one reason, uh, under King Edward, Elizabeth's brother, there'd been a Protestant Reformation, and that had done away with the traditional Catholic robes um, because there was no mention of robes in the Bible and they wanted their church to be going back to the biblical model as much as possible and to be getting rid of all these later Catholic traditions. So what Elizabeth was doing was kind of backward looking. It, there had been this reformation and she was taking a step backwards towards Catholicism. Now, these people had also lived through Queen Mary's attempts to burn Protestantism out of England. Uh, and so they had suffered and some of them had died for the sake of reformation, um, for standing against these traditions. And so for Queen Elizabeth to go, yeah, we're going to have them anyway, despite the fact that people have died for, for this faith. Um, the, these robes became a symbol of the regime which had been burning Protestants. And so it was just absolutely intolerable to a lot of more progressive left-wing Protestants that these robes would be brought back into the church. So uh, there were ministers who managed to get away with not wearing them and having you know, other uh, variations on the prayer book service. Um, 
But the Queen wanted every church to be doing the same thing. This is what everyone expected. They disagreed on what the church was going to be like, but everyone expected that every church would worship in the same way. But uh, the Queen uh, demanded that Archbishop Matthew Parker um, enforce uniformity on these uh, dissident Puritans who were mainly based in London at, at this point. So he got the ministers of London together. They put the robes on a, um, a kind of a model minister, got him to walk up and down the catwalk. And they said, this is the uniform sign to say that you're going to wear it or you will be out of a job. And out of 110 ministers of London, in the end, there were 14 who held out and were willing to lose their jobs rather than to wear the robes. So these uh, some some of the most radical these ministers who had lost their jobs they got together with their followers and said what do we do now and they remembered that under queen mary they had met in private and had this underground protestant church and they said that's what we have to do even under the protestant church of queen elizabeth she is not allowing us to worship as the Bible tells us to worship. So in order to do that, we're going to have to have our own meetings. So that was all it was to start with. It was just, we have to worship in this way. So in order to do that, we can't do it in the parish church. We're going to do it in the pub. Or we're going to do it in a ship. Do we have any sense how big this underground church mm. network was? Well, the um, the Bishop of London uh put the figure at 200 people. The uh, Spanish ambassador put the figure at 5,000 people. So somewhere between those two extremes, um, the Bishop Grindle was wanting to downplay the significance of the, of dissent, whereas the, the Catholic ambassador was delighting in these stories of dissent. Um, from the reports of members themselves, I would put the figure at its height as somewhere around a thousand or so, which is you know getting on for maybe 1% of the population of London. And in terms of logistics, you've mentioned people meeting in pubs or faking weddings. But how was the, the message spread and how did these networks form? At this point, it was spread very much by word of mouth. Um, you know, printing wasn't allowed to them. And if they wrote handwritten documents, they may well have done and they um, they haven't survived in that case. So as far as we know, it was simply people talking to each other um, in later decades. There were leaders of the separatist movement who uh, left the country for the Netherlands and they set up their own um, printing operations. Uh, and there was some illegal printing in London as well. And so later on, as the movement uh, became more established, um, people were printing writings and a lot of propaganda. But in this early stage, it was really just word of mouth. Do we have any sense of what kind of people the movement attracted? Did it, for example, attract people that were generally nonconformist, maybe outside of their religious beliefs as well? Or was it um, quite widespread in its appeal? Well, uh, again, according to the Bishop of London, it was the lowest of society who were interested in it. And again, that's a way of downplaying. He also said it was more women than men. Uh, as far as we can uh, tell by the, the lists of people who were arrested, um, it seems to be an even number of men and women. And from what we know of their jobs, there were... 
Um, there were woodchoppers, there were goldsmiths, there were well-to-do bakers. So it was a fair spread of London society. It was um, later on, again in the movement, it was led by people who were university educated. But the mass of the movement um, seems to be a fair spread of you know, ordinary London people. Can you reinforce or give us a sense of why this was deemed so threatening? Yes, it was uh, this movement that eventually uh, started developing the idea that religion should be free and that the church should be a voluntary organisation. And that was a completely different and new way of thinking because although the Protestant movement said every person should read the Bible for themselves and should follow their own mind and their own conscience, the leaders of Protestant churches uh, and their followers still were in complete agreement that what the church is is a whole Christian nation where everyone believes the same thing and it's all part of the same organisation. And that's what the church had been for a thousand years. The church in Western Europe had united the entire civilization in one creed. And so even if you thought that you believed, as Protestants did, in freedom of conscience, they also believed that everyone should agree on what Christianity is. And so if people don't agree, then they should be punished until they do agree. Now, Protestants, having lived through Catholic persecution, didn't want to become persecutors themselves. They didn't believe in persecution. But they also believed that the church had to be an entire nation because that's what the church had always been. And they thought that if it wasn't that, um, then the church would lose all control of society and civilization would collapse. They, they started off trying to use arguments to persuade people and bring them around. Uh, and the first measures taken against these underground Christians were quite gentle, maybe put in prison for a little bit and then released. But in the end, they found that this wasn't persuading people. People. Uh, and so the state had to use coercion to bring people uh, back to the right way of thinking. So their idea of church was an entire state united in one belief. Um, and it took this dissident movement to start meeting on its own uh, and having voluntary churches to start thinking, surely this is what church should actually be. But once you have voluntary churches, of course, then you can't have one whole state church controlled by the government. And it seemed that if you gave people that freedom, then you would lose control of society. So, you know, it couldn't be done. We've spoken about how um, some felt that the reforms under Elizabeth weren't going far enough. But how did things then change when James I and Six of Scotland came to the throne in 1601? He loved theological discussion. And so he... Uh, got not only the bishops who Elizabeth had used to enforce uh, her rule on the church, um, but Puritan dissidents together, not not people who had left the church, but Puritans within the state church. He got the bishops and the Puritans together to debate on what the church was going to be like under his rule. Uh, the bishops argued that the church should stay exactly the same as it had been under Elizabeth. The Puritans argued for further reform. And James, was he leant towards the bishops. He didn't want to have a thorough reform of the church, but he did agree to have some mild changes in the Puritan direction. One, of course, was the translation of the Bible, which led to the authorised version. But he also agreed to have 
some other changes in the government of the church and some of the things that were in the prayer book that the Puritans were very keen to introduce. Um, he enjoyed having the discussion. He wasn't that great on them doing the work to make this happen in the church. And so none of that happened at all apart from the translation of the Bible. So basically with James, things carried on exactly as they had been under Elizabeth. Perhaps it's worth delving in a bit more at this point to what exactly the Puritans were wanting and what they were aiming for. So the Puritans believed that the Bible gives us a blueprint of what the church is like and uh, that the Bible has authority. So the church that the Bible describes is what we should uh, have. In the, the Church of England, as in the Catholic churches, there were all kinds of other traditions that had grown up over time, such as using the sign of the cross. That's not mentioned in the Bible, so the Puritans said we have to get rid of that, um, whereas the church wanted to keep it. Stained glass, not mentioned in the Bible. Puritans said we have to get rid of that. Any kind of ornamentation in church decoration that's not mentioned in the Bible, any practices. Uh, so baptism and communion uh, are mentioned in the Bible, so we keep those. But any kinds of rituals that are growing up around them, like having godparents who make promises on behalf of the children who are being baptised, they wanted to, to get rid of that. So it's really kind of... Um, streamlining the church, um, scaling it back again, simplifying everything. Um, so more focus on sermons, more focus on the Bible, getting rid of any other traditions. Um, the Puritans uh, also, they had suffered under the rule of bishops who were um, imposing their authority on the church. They found the, the rule of bishops an obstacle to getting what they wanted in the church. Um, so they also looked in the Bible and said, huh, no bishops in the Bible either. So let's get rid of the bishops. A lot of Puritans were just happy to get rid of the robes and that kind of thing. More radical Puritans uh, joined the Presbyterian movement. That's getting rid of bishops and having a more egalitarian structure where, um, ministers and local churches, they're in charge of their own church, but there's no bishop or hierarchy above them. They just work with each other in synods to control the church. Um, now, the the separatists, the um, people who split away from the church and ended up getting on the Mayflower and going to North America, um, they had an even more radical version than that. The separatists came up with what's called the congregational theory of churches, which was that the people rule the church, not the ministers. So as Robert Brown, the separatist leader, put it, the voice of the people is the voice of God. So instead of the minister being in charge, the people decide everything. So it was a, a more democratic approach to religion, yes. arguably. Would that be yes, fair? absolutely. Yes. I think also a lot of people would assume stereotypical image of a Puritan would be quite uh, one of a severe, austere joyless lifestyle. Is that a fair representation or is that a myth that's grown up afterwards? Well, to be fair, Purins did like disapproving of stuff. That was one of their, uh, their main features was uh, disapproving of things. So there is that. But um, when you look at the first meetings of the underground church, they, they met together in a pub they worshipped and they you know they got through plenty of food and drink in the time that they were together they collected money and distributed it to those who had need um, and then afterwards they went to watch a play which you know, these are kind of things that maybe later generations of puritans might have disapproved of but you know there's some variety 
in there. You mentioned quite a lot earlier in this discussion that eventually these many of these separatists began to look outside of England. Was there a trigger that made them think that it might be time to leave or was it a gradual build of events? Throughout the, the story of the separatists, there were some waves of um, migration and exile. So in the early years when the first London movement was going in and out of prison, they were... um, It's not sure how much this came from the dissidents themselves or how much actually came from the government, but they ended up going to Scotland um, to see if they would be happy there in exile. Uh, The government actually sent them letters recommending their uh, fervent Protestantism to the Scottish church in the hope that they might stay. And they lasted about a week. Uh, It was cold. um, They didn't approve that much of the Scottish church either, it turned out, and they came back home. Um, Then in the second generation of the movement, when it was led by Robert Brown, they, in in the Norfolk, Suffolk area, they were in and out of prison a lot, uh, and they thought about exile as well, and they went to the Netherlands, to Middelburg, and um, they stayed there for quite a while until they found that once they were free, they just disagreed with each other, and the, the church split up, and they you know gave up and came back again. Um, So throughout the movement, there were people toying with exile, trying it out and often finding that it didn't work that well and coming back again. Now, under James, there was a whole new wave of persecution um, and a lot of Puritans were again made to conform to the rules of the Church of England throughout the whole country. And so that led to yet another wave of separatism. Um, and these people, again, were put into prison and decided that they would be better off in the Netherlands. So there's uh, there were more waves of uh, migration to Amsterdam, to Leiden. Whenever there was a an attempt by the government to crush Puritanism and to impose conformity on everyone in the church, that led to some people leaving, and because they were faced with prison, um, to to go overseas. So, yes, there were waves of persecution which led to waves of separatism, which led to waves of exile. Why was the Netherlands chosen as a potential location and did life there live up to the expectations? So the Netherlands was chosen as with Scotland uh, because it, it had a reformed church which the Puritans thought would be better than the Church of England, more according to their taste. Now, they didn't join the church, but it was a more um, congenial environment for them to be in. Uh, And they thought they'd have some more fellow feeling with the people there, although they generally ended up disapproving of it and fighting with them. But um, the Netherlands particularly, unlike Scotland, under William of Orange, had probably the most tolerant religious regime um, in, in Europe. And um, so people were free to set up their own churches. Anabaptists who were in England treated with horror and contempt and were burned at the stake um, by Elizabeth. Um, they were given uh, freedom to worship. And so there was uh, the Reformed churches, there was the Anabaptists, there were Jews allowed in um, in Amsterdam, which weren't in England. Uh, so you, this was a place where even the Septus felt that they could um, get on okay. And they did. They um, 
they were given freedom of religion. The Dutch state church didn't like them um, and it tried to get the government to take measures against them and to get rid of them. But you know, the government generally were on uh, the side of freedom of religion and were perfectly tolerant of the separatists. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But the story of the separatists shows that if that's what the church is, then that is only ever sustainable by coercion. And that makes life so difficult for people that um, if they take their faith seriously, then they face prison. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Something that comes up again and again in the book, and it has come up in this conversation is is the question of infighting mm. and how mm. it seemed to be impossible to establish a new church without some kind of splinter or split or um, personal animosity involved. Yeah. Um, do you think that that was one of the major challenges in establishing these new churches? Mm. Yeah, you see, the movement was thoroughly... Well, it was thoroughly individualist in that they uh, believed every person must think for themselves and follow their own conscience, read the Bible for themselves and follow it for themselves. Um, it was also you know, communitarian in that they thought that everyone who does that should, everyone who does that rightly should get together um, and worship together and look after each other um, and keep an eye on each other. And when anyone steps out of line, correct them and make them repent and bring them back to the church or kick them out if need be. These churches were, were full of people who thought, I've read the Bible I know what God is saying to me. I have to do this. And so they they took that so seriously, they were willing to leave the Church of England, risk their lives, face prison to in order to join this separatist church. Um, now, as long as they were being persecuted at home and they were in and out of prison, the, um, that seems to be enough to have kept them together. 
they go to Amsterdam or Leiden or wherever, um, and they find themselves in complete freedom. And this bunch of very strong-minded, very passionately committed believers who have risked everything for the thing that they believe themselves, their own personal interpretation of the Bible, which they believe is absolutely sacrosanct. Um, you know, they're all now trying to get along in one organisation together. They're all trying to agree with each other. Um, and, of course, you know, when uh, different people read the 66 books of the Bible, they find different things in it. And obviously, given enough time, they fell out with each other. And because of the people they were, there was no way they could live with those differences. One of them had to be right. The other one had to be wrong. Well, of course, it's me who's right and it's you who's wrong. So splits upon splits. And yeah, that was the the shape of the movement. As well as the um, voyages to Amsterdam, so it was also a voyage to Newfoundland, which I, mm. I was surprised to learn about. What happened there? Yes. Well, okay, so this goes back to um, the 1590s when uh, there were a lot of underground Christians in the prisons of London and their three leading members, Barrow, Greenwood and Penry, were executed and the parliament passed a law saying basically that separatists, uh, their lives were forfeit, so if they stayed in the country, uh, they could be executed. The leader of the church was still in prison in London, that's Francis Johnson, um, and again, we don't have a lot of uh, information about the background of this, but it seems that Johnson talked to the Privy Council and got an agreement that he could be free if he left the country and went to Newfoundland and um, tried to form a colony there. Uh, from the English point of the English government's point of view, this would get rid of a big problem in all this separatists who were causing so much trouble at home. Um, it, it would use that problem as a colonial opportunity. If they went to Amsterdam, they could use Dutch printers, write books and bombard England with separatist propaganda, which is what they did. From Newfoundland, that's much more difficult. Uh, there aren't any printers over there. And how do you get the books back? So, um, yeah, it was a chance for the government to solve a problem. And from the point of view of the separatists, if the government agreed to this, they would tacitly be allowing the separatist movement as a kind of Christianity which is tolerated in the Queen's domains, not in England, but in overseas domains. So that would be a step towards toleration for them, which would be um, a completely new thing. So why why do we not talk about um, the great anniversary of the journey mm. to Newfoundland? Mm. Well, um, it failed, and we uh, we don't really know why. The um, so the four separatists who went on this expedition to scout it out. If it's successful, they would have brought all the others over with them. But four scouts went over there. One of their ships was sunk. They lost a lot of their possessions. They found that there were rather more people out there uh, with fishing stations than they expected. So it would have been harder to found found a colony. And um, the sailors mutinied and wanted to come home. And also it was a really hostile environment. Um, and just, you know, four separatists plonked there um, on the Canadian shore. Um, yeah, yeah, you can understand why they would take one look and go, you know, maybe Amsterdam. So after all these failed fits and starts, why did they then turn to America? One reason 
is that the the wave of separatists who had come over to Amsterdam um, in the wake of James the First coming to the English throne um, and the persecution that followed on from that, they had been in Leiden and Amsterdam for 12 years. And the church had been very successful there. It had grown. But it seems that now that was kind of tailing off the older generation were dying off, the younger were wandering off um, or becoming Dutch. And so it seemed like the English church would, uh, you know, uh, lose its shape uh, and its distinction and it, its members. So there was a sense of things weren't going that great for them. It's hard to overstate just how much they understood their own experiences as following the patterns of the Bible stories. Um, That is how they understood their own lives. And the key one was the story of the Exodus. The children of Israel taken out of slavery in Egypt, led through the wilderness into the promised land. Um, That is what they thought was happening to them. So England was Egypt, the land of slavery, um, and God had led them out of that into a foreign land. Now, Amsterdam, it turned out, hadn't been the promised land. So that's a disappointment. Where does that leave us? Um, We can't go back to England. That would be going backwards. And that was the one thing the Protestant movement could not do. It was a movement of going forwards, of advance and progress. And God had led them forward. If they had gone back to Egypt, back to England, they would have been turning their backs on God. And that would have been failure and betrayal. They had to go forward. It couldn't be England. They couldn't stay in Amsterdam. Where was God leading them? Well, They didn't know. It could be anywhere. Have a sense of going forward into something new and different in the belief that if you take this leap of faith, it will turn out somehow to be the promised land. So North America was a kind of clean slate. And although they were terrified of the dangers from um, the environment and from the people of North America, from the accounts that they had read, they had to go somewhere, um, and they, in the end they decided that this was where God was leading them. The general assumption, I think, about um, those in the Mayflower is that they were going to America to flee persecution, but you make an interesting assertion in the book that we shouldn't view fleeing persecution as the primary motive. You could certainly say that they left England to escape persecution. They went whether to Scotland, to Amsterdam, to Leiden. Uh, They were doing that to escape persecution. Um, They also believed that God was leading them to a new place and they were following God in doing that. But yes, they did that because they were persecuted at home. But in Amsterdam, in Leiden, they didn't face persecution. Um, They had their difficulties, but they uh, had all the toleration you could possibly ask for in there. So they didn't leave the Netherlands to escape persecution. So we have to find... uh, a different motivation um, and my understanding of it. And I, to be honest, that I think they found it quite hard to articulate their reasons for leaving Netherlands for North America. But my understanding of it is this deeply ingrained sense that you have to go forward, um, even if it's this terrifying leap in the dark. So who was on the Mayflower and what were they seeking when they arrived? So um, about a half of the passengers on the Mayflower 
were the were my separatists. Um, uh, but in order to finance the expedition, they uh, had to take others as well. So there were this group that they called the strangers, you know, non-separatists who were going there for. Um, their own reasons. There was actually a su- surprisingly large amount of migration to North America at this point. Lots of people going to Virginia, um, and this was their their plan of the Pilgrim Fathers was to go to Virginia, but they um, obviously they ended up uh, a little further north than that. Um, but yes, yeah, so there was a, a mixture of people for a mixture of reasons who were wanting to make a new start. Um, you know, it's a, a new economic opportunity or a chance to leave behind whatever insuperable difficulties they were facing in their homeland. Well, it wasn't all plain sailing in the preparations for the voyage. And logistically, there were quite a lot of tricky issues. Can you give us a sense of some of those, the stories involved in that? The the group of the separatists who sailed on the Mayflower, they were the ones who were based in Leiden in the Netherlands. And everything that happened uh, as far as the organisation of the colonialism was concerned happened in London. So there was the Virginia company uh, that was in charge of the Virginia colony where they were supposed to be going. That was based in London. They had to send members of their church, um, two agents particularly, Carver and Cushman, to go over to London. They needed to get investment Uh, in the venture. They needed to be taken under the auspices of the Virginia Company. Uh, They needed to find a ship or two ships Um, and they needed to get hold of all the the provisions, biscuits and, and butter and what have you. They had particular difficulty in the negotiations with the investors because for one thing, they, they had hoped to get a fishing monopoly in North America, which would allow them in a certain stretch of coastland, but they couldn't get that right. Um, and so it was the only way they were going to be making money is um, under their own power from their farming and hunting and whatever. The separatists offered their investors uh, a contract where they would work for four days a week for the investors and they would... Um, own their own, the investors would own the land for seven years and then it would revert to the settlers. Um, but that wasn't good enough for the investors. They weren't going to make enough money out of that. And so the agents in London had to renegotiate the contract. Um, and so they would be working basically the whole time for the investors. And um, even after seven years, the investors would still own half of the land. So, um, the the settlers, um, having entrusted these contracts to their agents, then saw the contracts and said, no, <laughs> um, that's a terrible deal. We can't live like that. We would be like slaves. Um, so in the end, they had to sail without uh, any contracts, without the investors. And so they really were uh, this intrepid bunch of pilgrims who were going to the other side of the world under their own, not steam, under their own sails um, and fending for themselves when they got there. But well, that was not the plan at all. They were supposed to be part of a you know, a colonial opportunity with proper financial backing. So it was a real risk, the voyage. Yes, 
yes. Uh, they knew it was going to be a risk. They didn't know what was uh, in store for them, but they were frightened of it. it. They knew it was a hostile environment. And and indeed, half of them died in the first winter, so they were absolutely right. Um, but as I say, they went with a sense that they couldn't go backwards. They had to go forwards, whatever that entailed. I think there's going to be a lot of discussion about the Mayflower this year because it is the 400th anniversary. What do you think, having researched and written this book, is worth remembering or putting back into the story? The thing that's, I think, come to me most powerfully is um, how difficult it was for people to live in Elizabethan England, Jacobean England, um, the England when the Church of England was the one state church, when this was a Christian country with everyone supposedly united in one faith. You know, um, I'm a Christian. There are, I have a lot of um, fellow Christians in this country who look back with some nostalgia today when this was a Christian country and we were all united together in the one church and Christianity ruled the country. Um, but the story of the separatists shows that if that's what the church is, then that is only ever sustainable by coercion. And that makes life so difficult for people that um, if they take their faith seriously, then they face prison. In extreme cases, they face death. They face having to leave their country to go somewhere else. Um, they face taking huge risks and huge leaps in the dark to escape. It's maybe a little late in our history to be saying religious freedom is really important because we've enjoyed it for so long. But, you know, when you take freedom for granted, you can find it slipping away. So um, uh, that's the thing that's come across most powerfully to me is that we have to um, we have to hold on to our freedom and we have to uh, give religious freedom to uh, to everybody. That was Stephen Tompkins. His book, The Journey to the Mayflower, God's Outlaws and the Invention of Freedom, is out now published by Hod of Faith. You can read a version of my interview with Stephen in the January issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Meanwhile, don't forget that tickets are now on sale for our medieval life and death days. These two days of talks from leading experts are taking place in London and York in March and May 2020. Find out more and buy tickets at historyextra.com forward slash events. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in next on Monday when Colin Grant will be talking about the experiences of the Windrush generation. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.